I'm Hugh Aiken, and I'm a writer and journalist. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. What makes this period so fascinating is it it's so, in some ways, so close to our own. And I think the other thing that when you sort of scrape away the museum purity thing is the discovery or the rediscovery that, in fact, this all began with the market. It really was the market. I mean, museums were what came later, you know? <laughs> museums didn't exist. There, the idea of putting modern art in a museum didn't exist as an idea. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey everybody, Helen here. I'm back on the feed to bring you a conversation about none other than Picasso with the writer and journalist Hugh Aiken. Aiken has covered museums in the art world for decades, and he has a reporter's eye for the idiosyncratic ecosystem that is the art world. His most recent book, Picasso's War chronicles nothing less than the commodification and institutionalization of modern art. Now, Picasso is a well-trod topic to be sure, but this book is less about Picasso's life and work and more about the network of dealers, critics, artists, and intellectuals who brought Picasso into the mainstream of 20th century culture. I hope you enjoy it. Hugh, I'm really happy to have you on the podcast today to discuss your new book, Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. And I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of background about who you are and how you came to this material. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, one of the really fun things about this project from the beginning was that there was all this great material and it was eyewitness material. I mean, this was how people thought and felt and reacted in real time to these crazy events that, that kind of shaped the, the, the early American 20th century. And, uh, just, it was, it, it was one of these stories that the more you dug into it, it, the the more interesting it became. I mean, uh, and I think my approach was very much, um, I've always, I've, I've written about the art world for years, but I also have always tried to keep a distance from the inside art world. And, um, I, I kind of like this outsider perspective and, um, I think especially when you get into art history, it's so easy to fall into these narratives that this is, you know, the Armory show happened and this is what it was and this is how we remember it. And so much of this sort of secondary literature kind of obstructs the 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 original view. And I I I I guess in 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 taking on this project, I really wanted to get back to that. What what was really happening at the time and it and it was this kind of perfect moment when everything was recorded. The the main characters in my book 
you know, kept diaries, they wrote letters, <laughs> they sent telegrams multiple times a day. You knew what was happening sometimes hour by hour. For me, this is, it's, it's just, um, it's, it's kind of the perfect way to, to kind of tell a story that's not history. It's, it's story. And, and I think that was really appealing to me. I'm interested to hear you say that. I have some, you know, official questions about the book. But I'm also someone who's really interested in method. I'm interested in the process of how things are made. And one did have sometimes reading the book, and it was slightly the page turner quality of it I mentioned earlier, of this like hour by hour, day by day, waiting for telegrams, waiting for letters. And clearly you had to read all that stuff. And I'm curious if you ever felt like strange or voyeuristic about reading people's correspondences? Like, did you get a sense in reading people's diaries and their correspondence that they knew they were engaged in something that would become world historical? Or did you sense more the kind of human muddle of everyday life of people not knowing what was going to happen? And how did that affect your own position as a reader? That's a really great question. I mean, I, I think I, I saw both extremes. And I, I, I mean, there were times when these characters were very much self-aware that they were recording, kind of making history. Um, and then a lot of other sort of much more mundane moments that you, you actually have to wade through kind of <laughs> You're knee deep in somebody's minor health problems that take up pages of correspondence, um, but it, but it's really interesting. I mean, for ex a, a good example of this is uh, so one of the main figures in the first half of the book is John Quinn, this kind of forgotten but <laughs> incredibly uh, connected and uh, influential figure for this brief window of time um in the early 20th century and so he's this kind of obsessive letter writer and because he's a corporate lawyer by day he has two or three secretaries he walks around the room dictating letters and so he can dictate these 20 page letters and he has they're typed and carbon copies um and these exist in big volumes and he write, he knows everybody. So here you have this kind of living record of human contact with presidents, artists, writers, publishers in this kind of fascinating moment in the early 20th century. And there are moments when Quinn is very much aware that he is kind of making history. And it's clear that his letters that have survived have been called his, <laughs> you know, there's, there's stuff that he didn't want people to see that. Uh, hasn't survived. There's stuff he didn't want people to see that did survive. But his correspondence with Henri Pierre Rocher, his great um, art advisor in Paris, at a certain point, he tells Rocher, you know, maybe someday our letters will be a kind of history of this this moment in art. So he's very aware of that. And meanwhile, Rocher <laughs> is a kind of modern day Don Juan who's who has made his whole life into a diary. And he is very much a kind of literary figure that thinks 
I think in, 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 in he, he's kind of a recorded, actuated psychological and sexual life, which is all in his diary and which he very much thinks of as, as a work of art. Um, so I think there was very much a sense and awareness of, of making history, even, you know, when, when, when a lot of it maybe was not that interesting or had to be assembled into, into something interesting. One of the great things about your book is the texture that you give to these uh, human, all too human characters uh, and their, their dalliances. Um, even though the title is The Making of Picasso, there's a way in which you don't really talk about Picasso and the work that much. The book is really about um, a, a bunch of people who lay the groundwork for the reception of Picasso. Uh, in the United States in particular. And it really does focus on, there are four main characters. You've already alluded to the collector, John Quinn, the art historian turned curator turned museum director, Alfred Barr, and then two very important art dealers in Paris, Conweiler and Rosenberg. And I wonder, you've discussed Quinn a, a bit, but I wonder if you could just you know, sort of briefly um, sketch out these four men and their role in creating the field that would allow Picasso to land, which is also another way of saying they create an art market for Picasso in the United States. And a huge part of the way they do that is they also create the Museum of Modern Art. Um, and its long-standing relationship with Picasso. So I wonder if you could just let us know a bit about these four guys and and how you came to focus on their role in particular in this story. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's it's kind of like moving backward and backward in time. I originally planned to do this book just about 1939. Then I spent a year in the New York Public Library Manuscripts Division reading the letters of John Quinn. And I realized this whole thing was uh, a quarter of a century in the making. You really have to go back to 1913 and before 1913 um, to this fi figure, Quinn, who, um, so he's, he's kind of the starting point of the story. Um, this Irish American um, small town Kit, he grows up in the Midwest. Um, uh, his parents are, you know, have fled the potato famine and, and settled in, you know, small town Ohio. And uh, he's just sort of this incredible self-invented figure who, you know, by the time he's um, 20, you know, he's, he's gone to Washington and become the, the secretary to the secretary of the treasury so that the secretary of the secretary uh, who happens to be the governor of ohio so he's brought this oh, this smart ohio kid with him so he's in washington he sort of effortlessly uh, meets all, all you know, sort of all the sort of political figures of his era he eventually ends up at harvard uh, gets a law degree he's this kind of corporate whiz kid and if the story ended there he would be this kind of boring achiever 
um, who ends up on Wall Street. But in fact, this is just sort of uh, his day job. And his passion is literature. Uh, he gets into the Irish Renaissance. He meets the Yates family. He becomes the kind of American promoter of W.B. Yeats, uh, brings him to the United States. And uh, he develops this sort of model for how do you introduce contemporary culture to this benighted, turn-of-the-century American society. Um, and this is what he then eventually brings um, to modern art. Uh, and of course, he knows nothing about French painting. He knows he's never been to Europe. He, he, he really doesn't even know what he's doing when he starts. And it's like, it's, he's almost 40 by the time he's seen a Cezanne. Then for this, you know, brief 10-year period, he is this sort of visionary figure in, in New York City. And he's, he's a kind of mover and shaker, bringing over artists, you know, buying up all this stuff and, and kind of trying to stir up a culture. So he's a sort of beginning point. Then with that, what's happening in Europe that is kind of, kind of uh, bringing, uh, kind of engaging him. And this begins with the world around Picasso, which is, of course, Conweiler, his first sort of big enterprising dealer. Um, and there are these two dealers around Picasso. And this was sort of the other starting point of the story for me is that we, we've always known about Conweiler. He's the discoverer of Picasso um, cubism. And, and he's also, at this very long span of the 20th century, he's the dealer who ends with Picasso. So after the war, so he's, and he's a writer and he's a critic. So we know Conweiler well, but what we don't know or know much less well is Paul Rosenberg, who I think is known as a dealer, but his association with Picasso has been sidelined compared to Conweiler. And it's sort of his story and his rivalry with, in, you could say with Conweiler, which, which kind of was the other animated thing for me because so totally different approaches to dealing. Uh, and Rosenberg's much more of a kind of big promoter who wants to really kind of make money, but also change the culture. And um, he has his early insight that America is the future. And um, Conweiler doesn't. Conweiler's really oriented towards Germany and Russia, um, these great uh, industrial barons in Moscow who, you know, Morisov and Shukin who are buying up uh, radical stuff that no one else is touching. Um, and, and, and Conweiler is right. Uh, you know, he's right really up until Alfred Barr comes on the scene, you know, America's not buying modern art, but, but, but Rosenberg has this other wager on, on the, on the United States and his is the long game. So that's that's the 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 part of the story and then the, then then the fourth figure of course is alfred barr himself who we think i think everybody thinks you know we know about alfred barr he's what what more is there to say i actually when i was doing the research for this book i i talked to john richardson and i asked him about barr and he's like well you know he's 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 sort of a dull fixture <laughs> and i just i i thought that was interesting because i i think that's how he comes across until you really have to sort of dig in to this fascinating, wildly radical um, behind this sort of cerebral facade. We have him, we have him as this sort of formidable, quiet, um, you know, cold, um, you know, 
um, genius, but 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 there isn't much animating, you know, uh, uh, color there. But I think that uh, for me, uh, ex- part part of the story was sort of figuring out. So what what was driving him? You know, how was it that this you know preacher's son who you know grows up in this kind of sheltered New England world ends up in in Moscow at the time that Stalin is taking over. And then five years later, he's in Stuttgart when Hitler is taking over. He's 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 like in the fray. Um, and uh, he has this kind of far more adventurous, colorful uh, partner in crime, uh, you know, Marga Barr, um, who is a fascinating figure in her own right. Um, and I guess, so we talked about these four male figures. For me, I think there was this kind of female dimension as well. Um, mm-hmm. And there are all these sort of supporting characters that I think have been, have been, been forgotten that, that were so crucial in the story. They were crucial around Quinn at the founding of, 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 of MoMA. I think that it's a little better known, but, but the story of the, this larger culture was very much driven by the women in the story. And I think that, that dynamic was interesting as well. Yeah, no, I was very, um, I mean, as a feminist art historian myself, I was very attuned to the, the, the women in the mix, um, and the way they sort of recede and emerge from supporting cast to main player and back again. They, there's a lot of, there's a lot more flow and movement there than history, you know, neat tidy histories would let us know i think that one of the things and i too i read a lot in your book about alfred barr that i did not know that i found fascinating that i'll get to in a second but one of the things that i wanted to ask you a little bit about is there's a way in which we i think we've come clearly a hundred years on now to accept you know, Picasso is a genius. Demoiselle d'Avignon is a masterpiece. Like we, these are, these are touchstones, both within art history, within museum studies, within culture at large. But one of the things your book does is show us that the masterpiece and the genius don't actually ever exist outside of a very elaborate network of people who um, are to varying degrees of consciousness to unconsciousness, creating a field of value. And I was just really fascinated to, usually one encounters that kind of argument in very heady French theory, like Pierre Bourdieu on taste or, you know, things like that. But you kind of meted out that theory through, again, letters and diary entries, that the idea that how we come to see the art of our time is really, really dependent on the context. And I'm curious from your point of view how that how it felt both to write that history and how it makes you see contemporary culture differently, if at, if at all. Yeah, I, I think that's really an interesting point uh you know i think we come to the art world often with with an, a, a notion of purity and corruption and the, and the you know 
And part of this actually came from Alfred Barr, who kind of established this idea of the museum as this kind of sacrosanct space. It's a separate from the market, which is <laughs> really funny when you think of all that, the, the ways he engaged with the market. But I do think that throughout, it, it, we, you have to kind of, kind of, kind of um, dig into that and, and, and understand where is that coming from? I mean, in the time of Conweiler, there's a different kind of purity that, that Conweiler is kind of inventing. He's, you know, I'm going to give all of these select group, um, you know, Brock, Picasso, um, Durant, and, and a few others, this privileged full contract. I will just buy out their their production. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to show. He, I'm not, he, he didn't even want to show. He didn't, didn't do shows except in Germany. Um, he didn't think the French were were ready for um, what these guys were doing. They got paid, and they could do whatever they wanted. But even there, you know, you're you're creating. Uh, it, it, it's very selective what he's doing, and he's he's very carefully seeding this market, and he's bringing in um, Shukin, and he's um, you know cultivating. Um, you know, his dealer friends in Germany, and he's playing a, a very careful game. And um, each of the figures has a different view of what the game is, but it is a game and a taste is created. And it, it's so interesting that, you know, that the starting point for Conweiler is the, the, the Demoiselle, <laughs> and he hates it. And, uh, mm. you know, it's not the one that he buys. You know, he starts that that's the starting point of his relationship with Picasso. But the Demoiselle uh, remains um, <laughs> in the storeroom until um, many years later. And uh, Conmeyer changes his story about it. Later, he says, oh, yes, it was great. And, you know, but you go back and see what he says originally. And, he, you know, he was he was no more, uh, you know, ready for it than than anyone else. And. Um, so I think that, that there, it was really interesting to see how this taste creation happens. And sometimes it's very conscious and Rosenberg has a kind of theory of, well, you have to, you know, it, this is how you run a big gallery. And, you know, he had views about the decor and, you know, you had to, to, to have, a, you know, kind of luxy feel that would draw in the kind of haute bourgeoisie and, and, you know, you, you kind of induce them into being a little more adventurous and eventually they will move up the chain to, to something more avant-garde. And, uh, Alfred Barr comes in and he has this whole exhibit, you know, the display and installation history is just fascinating here. I mean, where did the white box come from? But it, it, it it's interesting. I mean, those early shows at at at, at the fledgling um, MoMA when it's not even in its permanent quarters, but he, they're they're still. You know, you look at these photographs and you see how they're hanging in this. He had this definite eye level position, but he's not he's not inventing this either. You you can see that, that Rosenberg is experimenting with this in some of his shows um, earlier and. Um, it really is this moment where everybody's thinking about taste and how do you how do you tame how do you tame this new art and 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 at the same time create a new a kind of new taste and a new and a new culture for it i was fascinated by precisely those details that you just mentioned because i 
as a as a curator and as someone who worked in museums for you know almost 20 years have you know I've thought about installation and how, I know the power of a bad install I know how a bad installation of a picture can kill a picture and I know how a really great installation can elevate a picture that isn't that great and make it seem great and I've seen the difference between how people behave in domestic space or the dealer's home or the museum gallery and and how all of that context goes into our understanding of um of how works of art function and one of the things that really interested me about the book is um I don't think I had really fully understood the degree to which the creation of the Museum of Modern Art in it by Alfred Barr and the handful of trustees that he made that museum with, how deeply involved in Picasso it was. Like I kind of knew, but not really knew. And one of the things I heard or that, you know, surfaced for me about the creation of MoMA, because of course, as you had earlier alluded, I came out of the bar school. We all did. There's no way to go and become a museum curator in the 20th century and not be influenced by Alfred Barr and MoMA of thinking that the museum is really, really separate from the market. But we see that at the very creation of MoMA, that it's absolutely a partnership between collectors, dealers, and bar. That bar is always creating a field um, where there's an extraordinary amount of people who have different aims. And a lot of the, I don't know how to say it, the ills of the contemporary museum, because we know that museums are in real crisis right now, they're there in the bar story. You have trustees who don't support him, uh, who don't accept his expertise who work in active opposition to him, don't lend him things, buy paintings that they shouldn't buy, that they said they were going to buy for the museum, all that kind of stuff. He himself ends up having a nervous breakdown and has to go and basically recover in some Swiss mountain, you know, um, spa situation. It's not which, as nice as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> is it right? I mean, I don't know a contemporary curator at the moment who also isn't in need of a year, even if it's an austere Swiss spa, if some kind of rest and recuperation. And so I guess, um, you know, I'm just curious if you too were aware in your writing of the book that so much of the early DNA of MoMA, it's, you know, it's struggle to buy works for the collection. It's, it's interest in the big blockbuster exhibition, the loan show, um, the you know, how Barr basically gets to this state of mental and physical exhaustion because of the loan show and the, the pressure it puts on him. If you were aware in writing it that these are exactly the fissures in museum culture that have, that have sort of broken open in, the, in more recent days. I'm so glad you picked up on that because that very much so without, you know, sort of hitting people over the head to me, it's part of what makes this period so fascinating is it it's so in some ways so close to our own. And I think the other thing that when you sort of scrape away 
the museum purity thing is the discovery or the rediscovery that in fact, this all began with the market. It really was the market. Museums were what came later, you know? (laughs) Museums didn't exist. The idea of putting modern art in a museum didn't exist as an idea. I mean, this was the... You, there were great shows, but you saw them at, at Vollard. And I think recovering that idea and the extent to which these enterprising dealers really were the beginning of the whole kind of larger picture. And I think then, then the dynamics and, and all the, the kind of tensions and everything come come into focus in this, in this new way. And in some ways, I, I feel like in a, we're, we're almost returning to that period now. And, and you see now that, you know, a lot of the great shows are not happening at museums anymore. And that's really interesting. Um, you know, I mean, I, I find it so interesting in the very early years of MoMA, you know, Barr on one of his annual trips to Paris, you know, he's trying, he's struggling to put together a show of, um, I can't remember, one of his late 19th century shows, Daumier or something. And, you know, there's a gallery in Paris that has all of everything, more than he's able to get. Uh, you know, uh, Rosenberg's already done this. And, you know, he, he has some French art historian writing the catalog and it's this curated show and the president of France is, is, is attending. Um, the galleries are way ahead of, of, of the museums. Um, and the, the tensions with, um, I, I think it's, it's kind of Barr's effort to, to, to math, the kind of effort of mastery over, over these forces when, when, and meanwhile, the, you know, trustees are, have their own, um, dealings with the market and their own, <laughs> sometimes their own game plans, uh, you know, and, you know, a figure like Chester Dale, this early collector, he's very much, you know, a figure we recognize today. You know, the collector who wants, really wants to do his own, his own museum, his own, he wants to call the shots. He's not interested in being someone else's trustee and have a kind of greater, um, you know, sort of institutional ideal. I, I can't help but read him as a, he's the historical, he's the antecedent to Eli Broad. I wondered if Barr's desire for a kind of museum purity while he was very much in the midst of this in a sandbox with very powerful men, you know, on both sides. The dealers are powerful, the collectors are powerful, the artists are powerful. Yeah, well, well, I, I guess that the, for him, I mean, maybe it was the, that so much was riding on just the idea of the thing that he was trying to create and because it, there was an, it, it, it hadn't existed yet because Gertrude Stein was saying you can't be a museum and be modern and and he was trying to invent this idea and there was so much riding on it for him that the only way to do this was to just this kind of absolute uh, imposition of of control and you know it's incredibly controlling and 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 this, the, in a, the same sort of way he tries to, to impose his vision of the art world onto the museum is the same way you see it, it, it in, in particular shows, the great uh, Cubism show. I mean, just imposing all this order on this, or even more so maybe the fantastic art show, which I, I still think is one of the most amazing shows of the 20th century. And Me I, I too. Wish, 
could have written a whole book on that. One of the things reading the book that I really felt aware of was um, as as many tendrils from the past that construct our our present right now. And I was also really aware that I was no longer sure if this is if this is how it works, if you know what I mean, like the idea that such a small group of people could, in fact, create the reception, create the field for the reception of someone as like Picasso for something as huge as the American public. Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess it seems really arrogant, doesn't it, to say, well, oh, this tiny group of people uh, were able to create, you know, publisher suggested the title of my book and I, I i i think how modern art came to america seems so <laughs> grand but but i think what was really appealing about this story that i think maybe captures that era this sense of the, the kind of walter cronkite era where there's a single person or like you know when every but when there were three national broadcasters and that was the news that everybody got i think in this era of the art world um, and, and it's, and maybe it helps that, that at the center of this is also the figure that is, you know, indisputably sort of has such a long shadow over the 20th century. So, so there's Picasso and then it just happens that the figures around him endure for this long period. I mean, Rosenberg and Conweiler are there through this extraordinary period, you know, and, and then the Quinn Barr. Um, period, just, it, it, and they all want the same things in different ways. And they all are sort of crucial to um, what what actually happens. So, so there was a way of telling this story in this very compressed, small way, which I, I, I hoped would be a, a larger story. That said, I mean, I think in the early 20th centuries, as, as today, there were dozens of different stories happening about modern art. I mean, really interesting things on the West Coast. Um, you know, Grace McCann Morley at the San Francisco Museum was doing amazing things. Uh, but she also was part of this larger story. I mean, she actually, um, it's interesting, San Francisco, I think, is crucial to a lot of what happens at MoMA. You know, this is where MoMA becomes on the national stage. You know, the, when the Van Gogh show goes to San Francisco, more people see it there than in New York. When Picasso goes to San Francisco, the same thing happens. Uh, it's, it's the creation of this national modern art world that I think was really crucial to that story. And, and it was an insight that I think Barr did have. I mean, sending these, not just putting together these shows, but sending them around the country. Uh, it may seem so obvious today, but it wasn't obvious then. It wasn't easy to move this stuff around. Uh, it was dangerous. Damage often happened. I have a whole file that I didn't get into in my book, but it, I, 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 archival letters, documents I found of artworks that were damaged in transit. <laughs> um, and, you know, insurance um, uh, and... But 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 to get back to your point, I think that there so 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 there is I mean there is this loss, sort of staggering loss we have today of a single story. I think we face this in in all different uh, parts of life now. Uh, we, we've been fragmented, 
um, and, and we're in this kind of chaotic information space um, that no longer has a kind of guiding master narrative. Um, and yet we also crave, we, 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 we sort of crave that, that, that narrative still. And, and part of, I think, our way of dealing with that this today is to rewrite it. Um, mm. so, and I think it's that, that maybe that's part of what's happening at, at, at a lot of museums now. It's like, what do you do now? Now, now they all have these collections, the collection that, that, that Barr wanted for so many years and was unable to get. Now we, we have too much of that. And uh, what do we do with all that stuff when there's all this new stuff happening? And how does the new stuff fit in with the old stuff? And um, I mean, and that also was a familiar story. I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, Barr, much more than I think we realize, he was bringing in old art into the conversation. This, this, that was the fantastic art show, but it happened many, many times. And, um, you know, they, they showed archaeological stuff from Germany. <laughs> um, and the show, after the Picasso show, the, the show that immediately followed it was this collection of Italian Renaissance works that Mussolini had sent to the World's Fair. And um, they were sort of stuck in the United States because of World War II. So, so, so Barr said, well, let's bring them to MoMA. Um, there was this constant conversation. Um, and um, I, I think that that's still happening. It's just a lot more maybe contentious and um, the, the issues are so much more complicated maybe today. Mm. Well, one of the things I really appreciated about the book was it's kind of digging into the details of things we take for granted now, like the big touring show, like the blockbuster show, um, and or the sort of sacrosanct, sacrosanct idea that the museum is somehow the space where the market ceases to be operative and the market space is some, you know, suspect space due to its lack of transparency. And reading your book, I realized, like, actually, these are now received ideas. And so as re all received ideas, they've hardened. And it's good to go back and look under the hood, so to speak. And your book um, showed me how powerful it is to look back at the 20s and 30s and 40s right now. Thank you. Well, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.